Welcome to Change Now. Yes, because we need to change now. Now is when your impact story starts. Listen, get inspired by visionary changemakers, and be part of the change. Intelligence took us to where we are now, but wisdom and compassion will drive us to where we need to go, a more sustainable world. So on this episode, we invite you to go on your own path today while you will discover the power of altruism with Matthew Ricard, Buddhist monk and founder of the NGO Karuna Session. Mrs. Groucho Marx said, why should I care for future generation? What did they do for me? Unfortunately, I heard an American billionaire, whom I won't name, saying the same thing seriously on Fox News. He was told about the race of the ocean, and he said, I find it absurd to change my behavior now for something that will happen in 100 years. That's the whole problem. The future doesn't hurt, not yet. And now the future is getting shorter and shorter. One of the problems is evolution has equipped us to react to immediate danger. If someone, a loudspeaker says, the ephemeral hole is in fire, we all run. If we say it will be in fire in 30 years, you say, well, we'll see in 29 years and 364 days. That's what President Bush, the father, told scientists in already in the 1970s when they were coming with all the what we know now about global warming, and he said in 50 years it's going to be really a major problem. And he basically said, come back in 49 years. So that doesn't work. So if emotions can make us to move now, we also need some kind of discernment, wisdom, whatever, consideration for others in order to be aware of, of what our actions are going to, the effect they have to, to on future generations. And, you know, in the many discussions I had with John Rockstrom, which one of the founders of those, I mean, of the concept of the planetary boundaries, he said, yes, in the end, it is clear that the whole issue of the, you know, climate change and the environment crisis, which is a serious thing and for which we have a short time, it comes down to the polarity between altruism and selfishness. You know, we won't be there, maybe some of you, now with transhumanism, will be there in 100 years. I won't. So it's only if we deeply care about future generations that we will do something. And some philosophers say, well, Future Jews don't have rights, because rights, you have to claim it as an individual, you have to be able to reciprocate. That's a very individualistic conception of human rights, or rights of the living. In fact, there's a natural right, which is not to suffer. That's the first major right, unnecessarily. And so we are responsible for that, and otherwise, as Greta Thunberg said, we are just a treason for of future generation, they will say you knew, and yet you did nothing. So what I wanted to share today with you is the idea that uh, having more consideration for others, altruism is not just a nice utopia or a luxury that we can afford when everything goes well, but it is absolute, not only it's an absolute necessity, 
that is the only concept that can reunite three time scales. The short term of a mother in Africa who needs to feed her kids in the next few days, the midterm, how we can flourish in life and have a meaningful life, and the long term, which is now getting shorter and shorter and accelerating, which is the fate of future generations. So how can we go to a more altruistic world? Well, you know, if you want to make a beautiful uh, flower bed, every flower has to be fresh. You can't assume that if you put many withered flowers, it somehow is going to look nice. So it does start with us. And we should not be discouraged to be one. Because in the end, cultural change comes when there's a tipping point. When there's an idea that is strong enough, it doesn't have to be the majority idea, but it has to be coherent, powerful, based on ethical reasons, and then there can be tipping change. That's how culture can evolve faster than genes. So we must start by personal change, but not just a personal change that is disconnected. It has to go to societal change as well. And that's the link that we need to provide so that this, after this tipping point, not only the ID change, but institution change, and all what we do can change. So what is having more consideration for others, or altruism? It is to want to bring happiness and the cause of happiness, or well-being, or flourishing, whatever you name it, that people have a sense of fulfillment, of accomplishment, that they feel their life is worth living, and they live it in condition that has, speaks to their heart and fulfills them. So compassion is basically a, an application or a particular instance of the general benevolence that can englobe all sentient beings. You know, when people say, well, you know, unconditional altruism, this is completely idealistic. You can't care for 8 billion human beings. But in your heart and in your mind, you can decide not to exclude anyone. So that's an attitude that no one is excluded, and you sincerely wish, without discrimination, that all sentient beings may find happiness and the cause of happiness. Now, of course, there are many sufferings, and we can see them all over the place. So when altruism, altruistic love or benevolence meet with suffering, it naturally becomes the wish, may the beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering, which is compassion. And wisdom is to know things the way they are, because one of the main cause, long-term cause, or deep cause of suffering, is when we are at odds with reality, when we distort reality. We become highly dysfunctional. If we think that things are permanent when they are not, that they function as autonomous entity, as we are deeply interdependent, that's not going to work. So we need that wisdom, which is a correct understanding of reality, whether it's uh, of, about sentient beings or the, the whole nature of uh, the way the world is. So now if you look at self-centeredness, excessive self-centeredness, me, 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 all day long, it makes our life miserable because it's in the bubble of selfishness, it feels stuffy, and you make the life of everyone miserable around you. So it is excessive self-cherishing, and naturally, then you will want to, by all means, to protect that, that self that you value so much and repel 
whatever seems to be a threat. So either the world arises as a threat or as an instrument for your selfish needs. And remember that the uh, homo economicus is supposed to maximize personal preference and interest. That's the kind of definition. So that leads to, to very strong attraction and repulsion. So now we lost it. If we could bring it back, it would be great. Okay, good. So, and that uh, leads to exacerbate as compulsive desire and hatred and so forth. So, in the end, it is suffering. So you see, suffering actually is rooted in that sort of ignorance and polarization on the self. So while if you go to move from that to consideration for others, altruism, first of all, you know, we know that the, the most rewarding sort of state of mind we can have is when we are spontaneously generous without sort of strings attached or self-interest, an act of pure love, when we embrace a maximum of others in our, in our heart, these are the most rewarding moments. So it's not the goal is just to make you feel good. It's simply that, obviously, this is the best way to accomplish the good of others, but it happens also as a bonus. That's also the best way to flourish yourself. So it's a win-win situation. On the other hand, Selfishness is a lose-lose situation. Again, you make your life miserable and make everyone miserable. So, understanding interdependence is crucial uh, foundation for altruism and compassion. Because if we go deep within, you find out that you know, nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, may I suffer the whole day and, if possible, my whole life. We have some aspiration to see a light at the end of the tunnel to flourish in life. And even we are confused, even we do just the opposite, even we are addicted to the cause of suffering, we would rather be free from them. So it doesn't take rocket science to transport yourself in other people's mind and say, yes, even they may be confused, but basically they would not want to suffer. So this is, shows our common humanity, or common sentience with other sentient beings, and that shows the interdependence of everything, both at the physical level, at the biological level. So this is a 2,000-year-old concept in Buddhism. Now some philosophers are rediscovering now, which is great. And then it's also the most pragmatic answer, because if you want to put around the table, People who care of extreme poverty, who wants to relieve famines and suffering and conflicts now, together with policymakers, entrepreneurs, and social workers who try to improve the, in society the you know, level of inequality and social justice and better policies and so forth over 10, 15, 20 years, or you know, a generation, a lifetime, uh, what, how you want yourself to flourish in life, that's the midterm. Then the long term is the fate of many, many generations to come. And imagine that now, today, of course, we are well-intended, but say less well-intended people, a thousand of them decide the fate of eight billion people on Earth. Everybody will shout. But that's, we, that's what we are doing, eight billion people now, about, about billions and billions of future generations that will come. We are determining their fate today and we, take, we should take it more seriously. So, 
If we have more consideration for others, what will that do? In the short term, we'll have a caring economics, where economies are the service of society and not the opposite. So like economists like Dennis Snower said, the voice of care, a voice of reason that has been put as the ultimate standard for making economic decisions cannot deal with two things, poverty in the midst of plenty and the commons, the quality of the air, of the ocean, of the environment. We need to step out of that and have the voice of care. So in the midterm, having more consideration for others will reduce social injustice, will take care of the quality of life so that every sentient being can flourish and fulfill their aspiration. And in the long term, of course, caring for future generations is the only way that we take the right decision. So you see, it becomes a very pragmatic concept to reunite all these people who want a better world, that's supposedly most people want that, but they need the Aryan thread that reunites and helps to work together with that concept of having more consideration for others. But again, it starts with our mind, because from morning till evening, we are dealing with our mind. It is our mind that translates outer condition either in misery or in flourishing. We can be miserable in the, middle, in the middle of a paradise, and we can still kill our strength, our compassion, our joy of living, even in the face of adversity. So our mind can be our best friend, like men and women of wisdom, like my teacher, Kangyur Rinpoche, here. But mind can be also our worst enemy, full of turmoil. We know now from the WHO that the greatest cause of becoming incapable of functioning in life in number of days and months and years is not cancer or cardiac disease, which uh, may be fa fatal, but doesn't last too long. It is related to health, mental health issue, whether it's depression, Alzheimer, or, or whatever. It, is the la 40, it accounts for 40% of our incapacitation day in lifetime. So, this is a serious issue, and also poverty in the midst of plenty. We know that all the inequalities have been growing even bigger in the last 30 years, and even more so during these uh, this, uh, COVID uh, times, where the richest became uh, like immensely rich, and that, of course, the poorest, as usual, are those who suffer most. So also, there's another thing, you know, we are eight billion uh, we are 8 million other species which are co-citizens in this world. They are not there for instruments of our desire, want, fancies, and well-being. They are just our co-citizens. And yet, we say that we are, we are everything, they are nothing. We can use them as we please. And that's completely, you know, we managed to abolish slavery, a lot of ethical and moral progress, this is a huge gap that we know many animals have consciousness. Most of them make a clear difference between well-being and suffering, whether it's physical or mental integrity, and yet we treat them as sausage machine and uh, egg-making factories. So this is an absolute uh, discrepancy and a, a gap in our moral system that we must bridge 
in the same way that we abolished slavery that was very good, probably, for the British Empire and others. So this is the thing that just cannot be anymore. We need to treat them, this kind of beer, which should take the bile, may stay 15 years in this case, and they're punctual. I mean, there's so many of those things on the small scale and on the large scales, which just makes this, this is, cannot be anymore. Then, we cannot continue to exhaust our planet as if it has unlimited resources. We know now that by August, we have exhausted all the possibility of renewable resources in the planet. How can that be? We're just borrowing endlessly like someone who has a credit card that can borrow a thousand times what he actually has in the bank. This is just doesn't work. We don't have three planets. That's it. So, you know, there was a president, I won't name him again, who said at some point, five years ago we were at the edge of the precipice, now we made a big step forward. That's what's going on these days. So the limit that you can see here at the edge of that waterfall, this is what John Rockstrom and his colleagues, Stephen and others, called the planetary boundaries. So in the 1900, we were well within, you know, that little circle in the center, the yellow dot. We were completely within the planetary boundaries that can allow the Holocene, which is a very stable climate period about 12,000 years ago, Compared to what was before, where there was ups and downs in the climate, that means the population, human population, was only a few millions because the climate was changing too fast. For 12,000 years, it was exceptionally stable until we start messing it up. But still, it was okay. So all those factors are those, if we keep them within a certain value, we can continue to flourish humanity as in the Holocene we did until recently. Now, in the 1950s, we were getting near with some, some of the issues, and that's five years ago. Now, it must have been updated. We went vastly over. So that's unsustainable, and that's, uh, if we don't keep within those limits, then <laughs> that's what we are going to suffer, and immensely. So yes, I mean, the human species is not going to disappear completely. But if, say, if it's four degrees, that means probably reduced to one billion. We say, well, that takes care of uh, you know, birth control. But at the cost of how much suffering, how much famines, how much conflict, they will not just die because they decide to be less on this planet. There will be terrible amount of suffering. So why? Well, some people have uh, some hypotheses. Sigmund Freud said, very little good in humans. From what I know, most of them are rascals. So if you start like that, no hope. Well, and Ayn Rand, very famous in the US, unfortunately not too much here. I consider altruism as evil. Wow. Tell me. Now, is that true? <laughs> Rascal? He looks quite sweet, huh? <laughs> this one too. <laughs> I think there's hope. So let's see something about very young children. So here you see a puppet is coming, that children is 12 months old, you see the puppet opening the box, cannot open. So the other puppet, oh, he looks quite happy. So the other puppet comes and it helps. Okay, good. Now second scenario. Again trying, the kid is watching. No, cannot work. Second puppet comes, bam. Bad one. So now guess, 
an experimenter who doesn't know who is the good one and the bad one shows to their kids. Okay, 90% take the nice one. You do that with three months old. Uh, they cannot catch, but you see where they gaze. 90% gaze toward the helping one. It's not for them, it's just the sole interaction. So there's a good hope that we have a foundation as a social animal, we are a stronger predisposition toward altruism and cooperation. Yes, we can be psychopaths, we can commit mass murder, we, can, we see a lot of those things happening these days with dictators and so forth. Nevertheless, there is a stronger predisposition towards cooperation and altruism. There's many studies with very young kids that are unconditional cooperators and then later they start discriminating and so forth. So we have that foundation, and therefore we need to just actualize it and, and make, it, uh, you know, make it happen in the best possible way. So cooperation is not just our exclusivity. You know, all these things, emotion, intelligence, consciousness, evolution is very, as we say, doesn't waste. So if something is very useful for us human beings, like having this very rich array of emotions, you know, having consciousness, having all this intelligence, no, it didn't come out just thank boom you, from the you, sky. Thank you. It's yes. bound to, we are bound to find it okay. in many other species you too. Uh, to different degrees, oriented to our different qualities, uh, you know, some... Some birds can fly from Alaska to New Zealand nonstop over 13, you know, 14,000 kilometers looking at the stars. We can do that. We do other things. We write symphonies and beautiful literature. So everyone has the skill needed to survive. So that uh, needs to be respected. So in fact, you know, uh, um, Anne Arendt spoke of the banality of evil about Adolf Eichmann. We could speak of the banality of goodness that we don't see. Look here, we are quite okay together, and no one is going to congratulate, you're not going to congratulate yourself that there was no a big fight, or nobody robbed or killed someone. It's normal, but because it is the default mode, we don't pay attention to it. We pay attention to something that is dangerous, that is threatening. If there's an explosion, if someone starts shouting, say, why, what happened? Because we need to pay attention to something that is potentially dangerous. The, the media will report if there was a, someone attack an old lady in the street, but if 100 people help elderly, it's not make the news, uh, so we forget about cooperation. So like people getting together. It is start from the you know, hunter-gatherers, they were highly cooperative societies. Without that, they would, they would not survive. And again, it's not only the privilege of human beings. <laughs> there's cooperation everywhere. Of course, there's a struggle for life. Winners and losers. But you know, struggle for life, we can struggle together, not against each other. And that's happened all the time, from, from the unsung heroes of compassion to heroic acts. This is somehow, we have the potential for that. And not only us. You know, this guy is pretty concerned by with his friend. So now, can this magnify? We have this potential. We say, so what? Look at the state of society. Look where our world is going. 
So we have this potential, but like everything, you know, we were not born learning how to read and write. We were not born how to play chess, to play badminton, to do all these things. We go to education, professional training. It's the same for everything. And why would basic human qualities be at the optimal level from the, from the start? That would be a complete exception to the way we acquire skills. So the idea that those basic human qualities like resilience, altruism, compassion, you know, inner freedom, the capacity to deal with the ups and downs of life and keep a healthy mind, those can be enhanced. That's the idea of mind training. And over the last 30 years, there's been a remarkable cooperation between those who do mind training full-time, like meditators, so-called, and neuroscientists and psychologists to see if there was, by chance, if they're just fooling themselves, you know, sitting on a mango tree with two incense sticks and blissing out, trying to empty their mind, or if that makes a real change and makes you truly a better human being so that you can better serve others. Fortunately, it seems that we are not just fooling ourselves, meditating in the hermitage and <laughs> something. It seems it works. So, Great meditators like Yonge Miguel Rinpoche or bad ones we need to compare, you know, like this guy coming out here on two and a half hours in the fMRI machine with Richard Davidson. So at least that was already a feat apparently to stay two and a half hours in fMRI. So the result is, is encouraging. This is one of the first studies published in the PNAS that was one of the most downloaded papers. So um, you see down there, there is a these two lines that are together, is, is we are studying the effect of uh, meditating on compassion in the brain. So the novice, when they are at rest and when they engage in compassion, that's the down one, you see no difference. Now the long-term meditators who have done between 10 to 50,000 hours of meditation, just to let you know, 10,000 hours is what a, a pianist concert has trained before his first or her first concert. So now when they are addressed, this is the down line, the yellow line, and when they engage in this uh, unconditional compassion meditation, you see the magnitude of the increase that was so large that it was unreported in neuroscience to have such a voluntary uh, change, brain change state. So that was a study, and then they started this field of contemplative neuroscience. Now they are hundreds literally of papers which have been published in all kinds of research, and the answer that fortunately it works. But the good thing is that it doesn't necessarily take $50,000. This is also a brain scan. So on the right you see novice at rest and novice trying to engage in compassion meditation. Well, not much happened because they have not trained enough. Now in the long-term practitioners, you can see the difference on the left on the resting state and then the what areas that are activated during compassion meditation have to do with parental love, with empathy, all that makes you care for others. But now the good news is it can happen in four weeks. You don't need, not at the full scale, but you see a significant difference in four weeks in structural change in the part of hippocampus, which is the structure of the brain that register and uh, deal with change, with training. And you can see clearly 
that four weeks of mindfulness meditation to MBSR techniques compared to a control group who has done something else uh, makes already a structural difference in the brain. So that's encouraging. That means we can change. Now, there's another factor that is much uh, spoken about these days, which is empathy. Empathy is two kinds, resonating with others on the emotional level, or cognitive empathy, which is to put oneself in others' shoes. The problem with empathy left on its own is you fall into empathic distress, burnout. So the research which, which I participated with Tanya Singer at Leipzig shows that Compassion, in fact, is a very warm-hearted, courageous feeling that is directed to others, and it is the remedy, the antidote to burnout, because excessive empathy is directed toward yourself, and this, the more you resonate with suffering, the more you start feeling as a burden. So that is shows in the brain. I cannot show it too much, but Tanya Singer showed that there are different areas of the brain. So empathy and compassion is different. So we got a letter from a guy in America saying, you are ruining my career. I'm the chief empathy officer in a company. How you dare to say it's different? I said, well, if it was not different, if only a matter of words, doesn't matter, but it is different. So you just rename yourself chief compassion officer. So now, fortunately, as I mentioned, this is faster than genes. That's the work of the evolution of Boyd and Richardson that shows that to make an altruistic gene, it may take 50,000 years. We don't have the time. But cultural change can change over a generation. So we can have a more altruistic society if we change, if you change, if your children change. And then we need caring mindfulness. Mindfulness is great, but you need to embed it with the absolute notion of compassion and care. And then you get two for the price of one anyway. And then education is so important. Again, it's just, as Aristophanes said, it's not just filling a vase, it's lighting a flame. And that's what we are doing here with Change Now. So thank you so much. And <laughs> sustainable harmony, I invented that concept. <laughs> you know, sustainable development is a bit suspicious because development always we think it's like a more and more of something quantitative. Harmony is a qualitative change. You can do better with less, and the best mantra for that is I did nothing, I did nothing, and you say that 10 times, you feel so good. So simplify, simplify, simplify. That was the word of David Henry Toro. Simplify your thoughts, simplify your speech, not useless blah, blah, like I do. Simplify your action, and do better with less. So that leads to sustainable harmony, in the long term, it's being harmony with the environment. In the short term, it's more social justice. So that's a sentence from John Rockstrom. All of sudden, is our Eden. We need to preserve that because we could continue to flourish for 50,000 years if we were not messing it up. Caring economics. That means having those three, like the Bhutan has this three index of wealth, normal wealth, environmental wealth and social wealth. No, tobacco is forbidden in Bhutan. Why? Because, of course, it makes the GDP grow if you sell tobacco, then it makes the GDP grow if you go send people to hospital with cancer, and then you have to bury them. Again, the GDP grows. But it's, it's an empowerment from the perspective of social wealth. So environmental wealth, Bhutan has 
10 times the GDP in standing forest. 60% of the territory has, has to be untouched. It's in the Constitution. So that's environmental wealth. So those three need to be balanced. The three indexes, not like that now, where we have economy, which is at the top of everything. And then one of the secrets is spending money on others. It makes you the best happiness. So if people say happiness, money doesn't make happiness, yes, it does if you give it away. That's another secret. So we, we need local commitment. We should not say, well, I'm powerless. But we need a sense of global responsibility. We're doing it together, which we are doing. We need to play with the different goals of the UN. We need to extend altruism to eight other million species. And sometimes they are doing better than we do. Eh? Voila. So here are a few books that you might be interested in. And then uh, from this guy here, but don't worry. And then just to say that it's not mere words, very briefly, I have uh, 1 minute 15 seconds. So we are trying to put that in action with our ancient Karuna. Karuna means compassion. So we started in Tibet doing 25 schools and where people have no education at all. This is a school that uh, cares for 26 villages and they are so happy to study. Sometimes we need bridge, this is our car. So the driver is reciting his mantra very fast. So we build 18 bridges like that. And then elderly home, the happiest woman in the world here. And then we acted uh, earthquake areas in Tibet and built the earthquake school, uh, earthquake resistance school at 3,700 meters of altitude. So we have clinics all over the place. We helped 200,000 people during the earthquakes in the Nepal, we built a beautiful clinic in Jharkhand, which is a very poor state in India, and another one in Bodhgaya, in Bihar. We do literacy for elderly women, children, cooperative learning through play, cooperative play, they are so happy. At some point, we build bamboo schools, it's best return on investment. You, for $60,000, you could build a school for 1,000 kids in three months. And they are so happy to study, so we, for food security, so I, I spare you the, the details, but we make 60,000 kitchen gardens, organic gardens for the, for the farmers who all, all have otherwise they used to buy their fruits and vegetables at the market. Economic development to become autonomous, environment, proper practice, respectful. And you know, as a photographer, you always try to put your photo everywhere. So this is my Marlboro County photo, and I have 35 seconds, I'll make it. And this is over the Andes. And this is our Karuna girl. I met her in a kitchen in Tibet many, many years ago, near a clinic that we built. And I found her, you know, some years later. So I, I showed that to Steve McCurry. You have your African girl, I have my Tibetan girl. And she's called Beautiful Ocean of Turquoise. And so she's also the symbol of the future generation that we want to take care. Wow, six seconds. So nothing is more important than an idea whose time has come. And the time is now, and the change we need is now, and, and the, the idea is more consideration for others. Thank you so much.